If you wouldn't mind turning in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We're going to be finishing up uh, chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians today. Uh, next week we'll be moving on. We've been working through the entire book of 1 Corinthians. If you're visiting with us verse by verse through the book of 1 Corinthians. And so we're finishing up uh, chapter 14. Uh, we, we've, we've taken chapter 14 a little differently than we normally do. And usually we just go verse after verse after verse after verse through books of the Bible. Um, but with the layout of chapter 14, dealing back and forth with the gift of tongues, the gift of prophecy, kind of uh, separated those. And, and so um, when I say that we're finishing chapter 14, and yet I'm going to be looking at two verses that aren't at the end of chapter 14, that's why, okay, so if you weren't here the previous two weeks, we covered the other verses. Hopefully that makes sense. All right. So let's stand together. I'm going to read actually the uh, second half of verse 33 through verse 35. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Let's pray. Father, thanks for your grace. Thank you for your word that you've entrusted to us, Lord. We want to be faithful to it. We want to be hearers, and we want to be doers of your word. And so, God, help us. uh, Give us hearts uh, to embrace what you have spoken, what you have written. Uh, God, give us ears to listen and hear. And God, give us a heart to love you in all of it to trust you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Let's be honest for a second. How many of you were anticipating, anticipating, anticipating tongues and prophecy, not ever expecting that in the midst of all of this, what is this? Like you, you snuck this in on us. No, it's just there. It's why I love Love, love exegetical preaching, just going verse by verse, because you have to deal with the uncomfortable stuff. We have to deal with all of it, right? And so praise God for his word. And let's just take this section, kind of pull it apart. What is Paul saying here in 1 Corinthians 14? Uh, I started with the end of verse 33 purposefully, as in all the churches of the saints, because that phrase is difficult for scholars. Uh, There's debate. Does it go with the uh, phrase before it? Uh, You see in in your Bibles, you you probably have verse 33 is kind of split in half. So you have, uh, for God is not a God of confusion, but a peace period, as in all the churches of the saints, comma, and it's attached to verse 34, uh, that's because of this uh, debate. Does, 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 as in all the churches of the saints, go with, for God is God, not a God of confusion, or does it go with the women should keep silent in the churches? <clears throat> and I think the ESV has it right. Um, it, it, it's, it's difficult to see it fitting with, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, Period. In all the universe, right? And so to limit that to and bring that in would not contextually really make sense. It's still difficult, uh, which is why there's debate, to attach it to the next phrase. But it seems likely that it is attached to 34, as it is in the ESV, uh, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. 
regardless uh, of, of where it goes. Uh, it doesn't change the interpretation of 34 and 35, but want to deal with that. And why is it laid out like that in the text? We get to verses 34 and 35. You see this statement three times, three different ways. 34, the women should keep silent in the churches. Right after that, they're not permitted to speak. And then ending verse 35, it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. What does Paul mean here? What's the purpose of him saying that? What what does he mean by women should keep silent in churches? What's Paul calling for when he says women should keep silent in the churches? They're not permitted to speak. It's shameful for a woman to speak in church. Is Paul calling for total silence? Women, if you're a woman, totally silent in the church? Is that what he's calling for here? Well, we know if we, if we back up further to verse 26, what then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue. We can assume that the women were participating in the singing out of the hymns to God. So they're making noise as part of that. But not just that, but we've worked all the way through the book of 1 Corinthians. So we, we remember, we, we can think back to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5, where Paul permits for women to pray or prophesy in the church as long as under the condition that their head is covered. So what does he mean here? And we want to remember the context. What's the context of this passage? What is Paul talking about or writing about to the Corinthians when he makes these statements. That's important. We want to keep things in the context of what and how and why they were written. So what's Paul addressing here in the context where we see verses 34 and 35? And he's, he's talking about prophecies, right? And, and specifically of the weighing or testing of prophecy. So uh, a prophecy is made in the church, he says, and it's to be weighed. Or it's like Second uh, Thessalonians, or First Thessalonians says, it's to be tested. And so he's referring to, contextually here, specifically the weighing and testing of prophecies. Prophecies made, to be weighed, it should be tested. And the women are not permitted to speak at all as part of this. They're not to participate in the weighing of the prophecy. Why is that? Why does Paul say that they can pray and prophesy in chapter 11, but now here they must remain silent during the weighing of the prophecy? Why? How does that make sense? Why why would he say one thing and then come and say this here? He tells us in the passage because of the law. The end of verse 34, they're not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. So what is the law? What's he talking about by law? Often we hear law, we think first five books of the Old Testament, Pentateuch or the Torah. But we know already in the chapter, Paul referred to law and he quoted from what book? Isaiah, Right. So that's not a part of the first five books. So when Paul's referring to law as he has earlier in the book, as he has earlier in this chapter even, he's talking about the Old Testament scriptures. So he's referred to Isaiah as law. He refers to the Old Testament as the law. Here, as in chapter 11, 
verses 8 and 9, he refers specifically to Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 24. So let's go there, okay? Let's read this. We're going to see this come up in other places where Paul has written, referring to this very thing. Genesis chapter 2, starting with verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. This is, we're going to see in a few minutes, what he's referring to here in 1 Corinthians as well as when he addresses it in 1 Timothy. The passage doesn't prescribe total silence, but he, what Paul's saying is that because man was created first and woman was made from man, then the pattern has been laid down to this end. It should be in submission as the law also says. This is what Paul is saying. This is what the created order, as he Paul points to it here in other places in 1 Corinthians and other letters that he writes in Ephesians and 1 Timothy. This is what he points to to instruct us. This is what the created order, Paul teaches, teaches us. So this is what we ought to learn. This is one of the things we ought to learn from the created order, Paul is saying. Now the question comes up, why? Would participation in weighing prophecies be forbidden, but praying or prophesying be permitted? What, how does that make sense? Why is it not okay for women to participate in the weighing of prophecies, but it's okay for them to pray or prophesy? How does that make sense? And let's go to First Timothy first to help us uh, understand that. 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul, writing to Timothy, pastor over the church in Ephesus to give instruction on how the church should function. And in the midst of 1 Timothy, he's teaching Timothy, encouraging Timothy, instructing Timothy as a pastor of this church. And in chapter 2, verses 11 through 14 of 1 Timothy, he writes this, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness... I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So let's let's take this backwards, okay? Again, Paul is pointing to what as the foundation for this teaching or for these distinctions? 
back to creation. He points back to Genesis 2 as the reason for what he's teaching. He says in verse 13, 4, I'm saying this because Adam was formed first, then Eve. That's exactly what he's referring to in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. So what is this teaching in 1 Timothy 2? 1. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. It's exactly what he writes to Corinth. Let her learn quietly with all submissiveness. The end of that section, verse 12, she is to remain quiet, exactly like the Corinthians. And in the midst of those two things in 1 Timothy 2, he says this, they're not permitted to teach or have authority over Men And I would say that is exactly what Paul is writing in 1 Corinthians 14. It's the same exact thing. The reason that women are not permitted to weigh prophecies and they are permitted to pray and prophesy in chapter 11 is because of this. They are not permitted to teach or have authority over a man. We need to remember what we talked about last week when we talked about the gift of prophecy. How important it is to see that the gift of prophecy in the New Testament submits to the authority of Scripture. It is not authoritative. Scripture is authoritative. And so when Paul's teaching and says a prophecy is made in the church, then that's to be weighed. What is it weighed with? It's weighed with the authority of the Scriptures. But the prophecy itself, as we talked about last week, is not authoritative. It is fallible. And so, Scripture being used to weigh the prophecy, the weighing of the prophecies takes place in what is happening, authority and teaching. Let me give you an example to kind of help you with what I mean here. If someone came and said something like this, I believe the Lord is telling us we are supposed to quit our jobs and just do this every day, all day. We'll form this holy huddle and we'll call ourselves the dwellers. And we'll be just like, just like the church in Acts 2. We'll just do this all day, every day. Won't that be great? The Lord has put this on my heart. I believe the Lord wants us to do this. Now, how would that be weighed? How would a prophecy or a revelation like that, what's Paul saying in Corinth, if something said like that, how would that be weighed? Well, 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 one man may just say, hey, hey, let's look at at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through uh, following, where it says this, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right, but to give you ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. 
Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Now someone else may address that and say, let's look at 1 Timothy 5, verse 8, where Paul clearly writes to Timothy and says, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Maybe someone will take a different approach if someone said something like that as some sort of a prophecy and say, well, let's remember what Jesus said before he left in Matthew 28 verses 19 through 21, where he says, all authority has been given to me. Therefore, as you're going, make disciples. He didn't tell us to get into this holy huddle. He didn't tell us to quit our jobs. He said, as you're going along, whatever you're doing, you make disciples. You make disciples. You make disciples. Now, what's happening there in the weighing of this supposed prophecy? It's teaching and authority. Because the authority of Scripture is to be used in the weighing of prophecy. And so what Paul is saying is, women are not to teach or have authority over men. And the weighing of the prophecies is a teaching situation. Why? Because of the created order, Paul says. Because God created man and woman equal, but with purposeful and distinct roles both in the home and in the church. This is so important for us to differentiate these two things because this, this, this breaks down so often in that we can't in our minds reconcile that there's a difference between equality and roles. And, and in Scripture, there is. It's what we call complementarianism or complementarity. It's the teaching that men and women are created in God's image equal before God as persons and distinct in their manhood and womanhood with distinct complementary roles. And both men and women are called to distinct roles in the church and in the home. Now you may respond to this, to this passage, to what I've said so far, and, and, and just from your gut even, just saying this sounds like ancient barbarianism. Isn't it true that this is just a form of male chauvinism that's kind of been held onto and carried over into the church so that men can keep the leadership roles and, and they can just lord it over? Isn't this, isn't this really just subjugation? And, and I would answer that this way, ladies, if you can look to the Lord of the universe as your example in your role, then you cannot claim subjugation. If you can look to the God who created you and me and every living thing and everything that we see, taste, touch, breathe, Everything, if you can look to that God as your example of how to live out your distinctive role, then we cannot claim subjugation. And both men and women can do that. You can look to God as your example. We'll get to that more in a moment. 
But I want to answer this. Why? Why can and should we as God's people joyfully embrace complementarianism? Because you may be thinking, gosh, is it that big of a deal? I mean, isn't this keeping the world away from us? Doesn't the world look at us when we talk about things like this? Isn't this pushing the world away? Isn't this a stumbling block for people both in the church and it's attacked just as much in the church as it's attacked out of the church? Isn't this just one of those things we can just say is not the main thing. Let's just get over it and move on and, and, and be more embraceive of all of these things. Why should we embrace complementarianism joyfully? And I would answer this because of where it comes from. But you will say, where does it come from? <laughs> and I would answer that in three ways. One, not from the curse. These rule distinctions do not come from the curse. Often, the argument will go to, well, that's just because of the curse. That's not true. Every time Paul points back to the basis, the foundation of why these things are so, he points to the garden pre-curse. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. I will make for him a helper. These things are made more difficult because of the curse. But they're not there because of the curse. The distinctions were seen at creation and had sin never, ever entered the world. Eve would have happily helped Adam for the rest of their days and flourished in that role. But sin did enter the world. And God gave the curse. And so now the curse is working against that created order. We see that in Genesis chapter 3 where God is speaking the curse on the serpent and then the woman and then the man. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, God says to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now, what does that last part mean? Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. The, the, the word desire there actually means you're going to want to rule over your husband, but he will rule over you. Now, the breakdown is those who disagree with what the Bible teaches about biblical manhood and womanhood, both in the home and in the church, will, will point to this and say what well, says Your desire, that does not mean to rule over. That means your desire, like sexual desire, will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. Let me just comment on that. Number one, later in chapter three, um, the, the same word is used to rule over. But secondly, if we just be real, no man on the planet would look at this and say, yes, that is a curse that my wife struggles with day in and day out, right? It just doesn't even make 
sense there, right? The curse works against us. The curse works against what God has called us to or ordained us to, the roles that he has given to us. The work, the, 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 the curse is pushing against that to make it more difficult for us to be what God has called us to be both in the home and in the church and in the world. The curse is working against us. You don't submit, ladies, because of the curse. You struggle because of the curse. Second reason, I think we should joyfully embrace complementarianism as it is written in the scriptures. It's written in the scriptures. In Ephesians 5, men and women... You see verses 22 all the way through the end of the chapter, verse 33, the distinctions and how those roles are to play out in the home. Ephesians 5 is a picture of how those roles, complementarianism is played out in the home. Verse 22, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And so we see there those distinctions. Those are, those are distinct, purposeful roles. But we also see those distinctions in the body of Christ and the church, 1 Timothy 2, that we looked at. And 1 Corinthians 14 here. Distinctions that are made. The third reason I would say we need to joyfully embrace complementarianism is because it has been eternally and joyfully displayed in the Trinity. It has been eternally and joyfully displayed in the Trinity. The Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are equal in essence, but distinct in their roles. They function differently. Jesus, the Son, you you look all through the Gospels, willingly submits to the Father for the glory of the Father. Is he equal in essence? Absolutely. From before the foundations of the world, the Holy Spirit willingly and joyfully submits and points to God the Son and God the Father for the glory of God. Equal in essence? Absolutely. The Son of God is not less than God the Father. The the Holy Spirit is not less than God the Father. Now, is this passage taken out of context and used as a weapon to abuse women? Absolutely it is. But the truth of the scriptures is it's not meant to that. And any man that uses this as a weapon does not understand the gospel, does not embrace the gospel, and does not see clearly what the scriptures teach about this. There is equality, but there's distinction in roles. The son gladly submits to the father. And had God never created man or angels, he would have been forever happy in the fullness of the Trinity. Forever and ever. He didn't need us for joy. He's been eternally filled with joy in himself. Yet distinct in roles. So let me encourage you I mentioned earlier that both men and women can look to Jesus, look to the Lord as their example. Men, 
both in the home and in the church. The Lord is our example. The Lord is your example, men. Philippians chapter 2. Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." And so in Ephesians 5, where men's roles are laid out, you see that in verse 25, it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. You want to know what that looks like? Go to Philippians chapter 2. He made himself nothing. He took the form of a servant. He died for his church. Your role, husbands, is to display that to look to Jesus as your example who laid his life down for you love your wives that way lead your wives that way and in the church first peter chapter 5 which refers specifically to elders in the church But it says in chapter 5, starting with verse 1, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. I know that that has to do with elders and not everyone, not every man is called or equipped to be an elder. And so you look at 1 Corinthians 14. Maybe you don't aspire to be an elder. Maybe you don't feel equipped or called to be an elder. But as a man in the body of Christ, what are you called to? Clearly in 1 Corinthians 14, there is an expectation and an understanding that the men in the body were equipped and ready to weigh prophecies. Men who knew the word, men who understood the gospel, men who could, when someone came and said something that was not consistent with the scripture, say, whoa, 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 wait, let's go to 2 Thessalonians 3. Let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 5. Let's go to Matthew chapter 28. Let's go here. Let's go here. Let's go here. Thus saith the Lord. This is what the Lord has said, and we will embrace that. Let's live it out together. The men, if you're a part of the body, you've got to be equipping yourselves by the power of the Spirit through the Word to be those kind of men. Women, both in the home and in the church, the Lord is your example. He joyfully and willingly submitted to the Father. And so when you come to Ephesians 5 and you see the distinctions for women in the homes, and it says... Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Look to Jesus, who made himself nothing, took the form of a servant, came and helped us. 
And in the church, look to 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 14 as what it looks like in the body of Christ. Now, there are some questions that, that come as we talk about issues specifically with the roles of men and women in the church. So women, I'm, I've, I've compiled what I think are the main questions. want to address those as best as I can. First is this, what if I have the gift of teaching? What if I'm a woman and I have the gift of teaching? We've gone through 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the Lord apportions. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives manifestations of the Spirit. He gives to all according to His will or as He chooses. What if I have the gift of teaching? And I would say, just as Paul says, use it appropriately. Use it appropriately. Titus 2 is a wonderful picture of women flourishing and teaching other women. That's not a negative. That They're flourishing in that. Spiritual gifts are not only given by the Spirit, but they're governed by the Scriptures. I mean, clearly that's what we see in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, right? That's what Paul's doing with prophecy and tongues. You're misusing these things. Yes, they're gifts given to you by the Spirit, but you are using them wrong. We need to be governed by the Scriptures. So we don't just receive gifts and then just get to use them as these maverick Christians however we want. We want to be governed. We want to be guided by the Scripture. So yes, if you have the gift of teaching, use it, but use it appropriately. Another question that, that uh, is asked, <clears throat> what if I'm a woman and I've been called to pastor a church? I want to cautiously answer this. I hope, you, I hope you know my heart in this. But my answer to that would be, I don't think you have. And that's not a lack of respect for women in any way. It is a respect for the word. And I believe that is the most loving thing to say. Because I believe that men and women flourish when they embrace their God-given and God-glorifying distinctives. Both men and women flourish in that for the glory of God. And so I don't, I don't think that's an unloving thing. I just think that's a biblical thing for the sake of your joy. It goes back to last week where we, we talked about uh, prophecy and how it has to submit to the scripture. So if someone comes and says, well, I believe the Lord has said this to me, then we speak the truth in love and we go to the scriptures and we say, but let's look at how the scriptures speak to that and let's, let's embrace that. The question that comes after that, what about the women who are pastors in China? If you know anything about the church in China, it is exploding exploding and a majority of the pastors are women so what about that my response to that is praise God praise God for what he is doing in China Korea any other country where that is the case but the gospel not the pastor will go forward the gospel, not the pastor, is the power of God for salvation. 
to those who do not believe. It is, it is wonderful. My heart rejoices at what the Lord is doing in China. But I believe that God's word is still true as it pertains to this. And I believe that what is happening will be best sustained and glorifying to God within the parameters of Scripture. And so I pray that men will rise up in the church in China and lead those bodies as they've been called to do and lead their homes biblically as they have been called to do. Lastly, last question that that comes is what about Deborah? Familiar with the Old Testament, the book of Judges. One of the judges in The Old Testament was a woman named Deborah who the Lord used to conquer the enemies of his people, Israel. So what about Deborah? And and, and I would say, let's look at what God used Deborah to do. Deborah was a judge in Israel. She was not a priest. She was a judge. If she were a priest, then absolutely we would look at that and say, well, Okay, the Lord used this woman as a priest to give spiritual guidance and direction and to be the interceder for his people, but she was a judge. And so if we're going to be faithful to the Old Testament and the New Testament and the picture that that displays, then it would be more likely that we ought to use her as a motivation to vote for a woman president in 2016 than for a pastor Because she was not a priest, she was a judge. And certainly the Lord used her to do great things. Let me finish by addressing the men. Often this this passage, 1 Timothy, 1 Corinthians 14, is felt by many, both men and women, as an indictment on women. It is not... But if it were an indictment in any way, men, it would be on you, not the women. It says in the midst of the passage here, if there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. I imagine many women in the church, in the evangelical church today, read that and think, what in the world is Paul talking about my husband would not give squat about the theological doctrinal questions that I have at home and so man I want to ask you are you answering her questions does your wife feel like she can come to you her husband the pastor ordained over her home to ask you a doctrinal question does she feel like she can come to you because she knows my husband is equipped to answer that does she come to you willing to ask you these questions because she knows in her heart my husband will willingly answer that with a gracious answer and i will not feel put off i will not feel demeaned i will be loved and washed as ephesians 5 says with the word of god does your wife feel that way 
Are you a man who has embraced the role that God has given you as head of your home, as pastor of your home, embracing the truth of God's word so that your family, your wife can come to you knowing this man knows God, this man knows the word, this man loves the gospel, this man lives out the gospel. I know my heart will be glad to come to him because I see it lived out day in and day out. He treasures Jesus. He loves the word of God. He's in the word of God. He's studying the word of God. He wants to walk in love. He wants to walk by the spirit. He's not gratifying the desires of the flesh because he's walking by the spirit. Is that what you are seeing as seeking in your home? Now, some of you may be new, young believers. Let me encourage you. Praise God for that. The God of the universe demonstrated his love for you and that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. You are saved by no merit of your own, but only because of Christ, his sacrifice, and his righteousness that's been credited to to you. If that's true of you, even as a new believer, then immerse yourself in the word to discover the riches and greatness and treasure and beauty and glory and just wonderful truths about this God creator who would do that for you. Immerse yourself and grow and and give yourself to him for his glory. But some may say, I've called myself a Christian for decades. but I wouldn't be able to answer my wife's questions. Man, if that's that's you, it is time to repent. You, You cannot define that as love for God. Let's be men of the word. Let's be faithful in our homes. Let's love our wives the way we've been called to. Let's be faithful in the church so that single men, you're growing and knowing the Bible so that people can come to you and you can encourage them and instruct them and show them, look at the gospel and look at the grace of God and how we're washed and how the gospel affects the way we respond to this and how the gospel affects the way we think about these things. Be those men. And if you've called yourself a Christian for years, but you haven't given yourself to his word that he's given to us to reveal himself to us, then confess that. And be a man of the word. Doug Wilson, in his book, Reforming Marriage, writes this, A man may not be a vocational theologian, but in his home he must be the resident theologian. The Apostle Paul, when he is urging women to keep silent in the church, tells them that if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home. The tragedy is that many modern women have to wonder why the Bible says they should have to ask their husbands. A husband must be prepared to answer his wife's doctrinal questions, and if he cannot, then he must be prepared to study so that he can remedy the deficiency. God has spoken He's written it down. He's given us his word. Let us be people of the word. 
Let's devote ourselves to it. Let's, let's embrace what he has instructed us to be and to become, both in the home and in the body of Christ. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love for us, God. I praise you for this body, Lord. Lord, I, I praise you. I'm so encouraged. I praise you for the women in this church. So many who have joyfully embraced this teaching. And you are using them gladly to teach and to encourage and to disciple and to build up women and to encourage children and to do great things for your name's sake. And they're flourishing, Lord. God, I praise you for men in this body who love your word, who love you, God, and have given themselves to you. Jesus, just as you called us to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow you, they've done it, and they're studying, and they want to know this God who would so graciously slaughter his son for the sake of our sins. And so they're studying, and they're growing, and and Lord, you're using them to lead their homes. You're using them to lead people in this church, God. I praise you for that. And Lord, I pray that your spirit would fill them, both men and women, to continue to joyfully embrace these things, to joyfully serve you for your glory, not their own. God, I pray for men and women who are, who are still growing and learning, so excited about their newfound faith and wanting to know you like this. I pray for your spirit, Lord. You promised that your spirit would remind us of the things that you have spoken. And so I pray that you would empower them and give them a mind and a heart to just embrace and soak in the things that are true of you from your word, God. And then, Lord, I pray for those who are struggling because of laziness, idleness, disobedience, just not treasuring you, Lord. I pray, God, that the truth of the gospel, Jesus, that you gave up everything to come so that we could be forgiven. Nothing we could do ever, if we lived a million years, nothing could we have done to earn your favor, God. But you looked on us in grace and love and you gave your son as an atoning sacrifice and as a substitute for our sins, as the wrath bearer for our sins, God. Would you help us to see that and to find such joy in that and to be so moved and led by the truth of the gospel that, that each of us, Lord, would immerse ourselves in your word, that we would keep keeping filled with your spirit, that we wouldn't gratify the desires of our flesh, but we would faithfully walk in obedience to you. Amen.